I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I will take any chance I get to say this on the CBC. Since Free Your Mind and Your Ass Will Follow, George Clinton has been one of the most influential musicians of our time. The godfather of funk is 82, and he's here to tell you how his road wasn't always an easy one. I mean, his sound is the bedrock of hip-hop and so much modern music, but he'll tell you he hasn't really been compensated fairly for that influence. A conversation with the legendary George Clinton coming up. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. So yeah, we're going to start with the godfather of funk, George Clinton, which means we should probably start with... His music. That's some of George Clinton and Parliament and Flashlight, one of their biggest hits. How do you talk about George Clinton? Because even if you're driving around right now saying, Tom, I don't know who George Clinton is. Was he president of the United States? Even if you're not as familiar with George Clinton, it's hard not to have heard something in your life that was influenced by him. George is considered one of the creators of funk music. His group's Parliament and Funkadelic had a massive impact starting in the late 60s. And then musicians like Dr. Dre started sampling George Clinton's P-Funk records, and that formed the basis for the sound of modern hip-hop, like this one. Like, What's My Name by Snoop Dogg, which you're listening to right now. That's Atomic Dog by George Clinton. Regulate by Warren G. and Nate Dogg. That's Mothership Connection by George Clinton. How about De La Soul, Me, Myself, and I? Oh, that's Not Just Knee Deep by George Clinton. Not to mention, he's still showing up on records by some of the biggest artists in the world. I mean, he's been on Kendrick Lamar's records. He was just on a Drake record last week, and we talk about that. George Clinton, by the way, for all that, is 82 years old. And we have been trying, just to give you a little peek behind the scenes, we've been trying to talk to George Clinton for a long time on this show. This is how it happened. So Fluvog Shoes invited George to be a guest speaker at this year's Flamunity Fest in Toronto. He just spoke there this past weekend where he unveiled a new George Clinton sneaker. And we took our moment. We called George Clinton over Zoom on his phone while he walked around his pool. I didn't know Canada was such a big part of George Clinton's story and in the story of funk, but we get into that too. Here is my conversation with the godfather of funk, George Clinton. George, how are you? I'm doing good, man. It's good to be uh, talking to some of uh, my roots up there in Toronto. You know, I lived up in Mississauga for a while, and um, Young Street was my hangout, <laughs> the Hawks and that. So, you know, a lot of when Funkadelic was started at, that um, Maggot Brain Free Your Mind era, we was actually hanging out. In the Toronto at that per, um, the studio of the Manta Sound Recording Studio. Yeah. What were you taking in when you were in Toronto on Young Street? Were you going to bars and clubs and taking in music? 
Oh, man, we was hanging out at the Hawks Nest. It was called the Hawks Nest. It was a club we used to play there. Matter of fact, that, between Boston and Toronto is where we created the concept of Funkadelic outside of Parliament. What did Toronto have to do with it? Like, was it just that, that happened to be where you were, or were you taking something in well, then? Well, you or? know, that was part of the tour circuit we were on. Between Buffalo, Toronto, um, St. Catherine, we used to play there. It was just, the kids was into the funk. They had an open mind for, like, more psychedelic stuff, right? Yeah, oh yeah. It was, it was brand new music. We, we heard the rock and roll doing the psychedelic. We was coming out of Motown, so we had to do our version of psychedelic. How did you end up getting into like doo-wop and, and Motown in, in the first place? Well, you know, in the 50s, 1956s is when I started the group. And it was doo-wop then. Frankie Lyman, the Cadillacs, the Platters, all that was the sound of New York and New Jersey. That's where I was from. And um, Frankie Lyman just turned me out. Why do fools fall in love? Why do birds sing so gay? So we became a doo-wop on the corner group singing under the street lights at night in the schoolyard. That was the beginning. Smokey Robinson came out in 59 with the, the beginning of their Motown thing. You better shop around. Oh, yeah. You better shop around. So I became a fan of, of Motown. I got a job at, at Motown being a songwriter. I worked for Barry Gordy's wife in New York. And so that was the beginning of it. And then at, right at the time we got our first hit record called I Just Want to Testify, the music began to change. I, I want to give people an idea of what we're talking about here. This this is that song you were just talking about. Take a listen to this. And don't you know that I just want to testify What you So that's George Clinton and the Parliaments, and I just want to I just want to testify. What goes through your mind hearing that now? Yeah, as soon as you, as soon as you turn it on, I, I, I try to remember my routine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are the days of the doo-wop routine. So yeah, that was the beginning of it. And like I said, as soon as it happened, that we got that hit, music changed, so we had to change with it. I heard that the the Beatles, like Sgt. Pepper's in particular, was important to you. Yeah, that was that one turned me out. When we put out Testify on that same year, 67, when that came out, Sergeant Pepper came out at the same time. Cream came out in Disraeli's gear. Jimmy Hendrix. All of his, I bought all three of his albums at once. It was so out there, you know. They were just brand new and fresh. Like 
what was what was Hendrix like? Because yeah, you would have known him. I knew him when he played with the, the Osley Brothers and King Curtis, and he he, he had a, um, Jimmy James and his group called the Flames. You know, and it was basically blues. Then you know, it was basically Lightning Hopkins, Elmore James, Muddy Waters. He had that kind of style but, and folk. And, he, and you know, he had a folk sound when he played the acoustic. Well, I but when he came out, when he went to England and came back with that Jimmy Hendrix experience, that was something altogether different. That represented the uh, era of uh, psychedelic. That represented all the um, trendy chemical substance everybody was taking the acid, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I what was he? I hear he was a good guy. What was he like? A real quiet, real nice guy, real soft spoken, but really, really nice guy. But when he got on that guitar, it was the whole world, you know, just like it, it was. Um, you, you couldn't believe the difference of the personality on the guitar. You know, when you say psychedelic, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Beatles come to your mind instantly. They represented that so thoroughly and made it a brand new thing. So you hear that and you go, hey, I got this thing going on with Motown. I got this music I'm going to make. They're pushing things a little bit. I want to push things, too. Yeah, so I, I just got some Marshall amp. We actually played a show with the Vanilla Fudge. We heard the Marshall amp and what that sounded like. Then we realized this is what Jimmy's playing out of to make it sound like that. So we went and bought all the amps in the world. We had these 15 amps on, on the stage. And so we became funkadelic, loud Motown music. The thing that strikes me about this, we're talking about music up until this point, right? We're talking about music, but like, it wasn't just music for you, man. Like it was, it was music, but it was also like the theatrics got wild. There was such this theatrical feel to, to, to Funkadelic, the flying saucer and the mothership, you know? Oh, well, we, we eventually got there, but it started, you know, it was the look, the, you know, the haberdashery, the clothing, the, you know, that um, old fashioned clothing I can I can still see Young Street because we used to shop on Young Street, um, Mr. Man and a few other shoe stores. Um, it was about the clothing from London to, uh, to, to the Bay Area in San Francisco to New York Village, the village, the styles, because I was a stylist. I was a hairstylist. So I was always into how to dress went along with the music. And by the time we got a hit record, it was time to be, other than a doo-wop singing group, it was time to become a play. Hair came out. Remember the play Hair 
was like a, 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 a Broadway version of Parliament Funkadelic. And so that we wanted to take it from there on into what I say Pink Floyd was doing with their big productions. I said I got to have a show bigger than that. You know, once we got the hit record, um, we want the funk. Oh, uh, tell the roof off. Once we get once we got that um, record, it was time to become a Broadway play, a funk opera. Well, all right, Star Child, citizens of the universe, recording angels, we have returned to claim the pyramid. Pardon on the mothership, I am the mothership connection. And I, I sat, you know, right uh, in Toronto, like I said, with a guy named Ron Scribner. And we talked about these kind of concepts for so you know, and he was like our road manager. And I just told him all the things that I wanted to do and all the dreams. And um, we kind of mapped it out when we got to hit record. Neil Bogart bought us a spaceship, and we was off the planet. You know, we went from America Ethos Young, Maggot Brain, to Mothership Connection, to Chocolate City, up for the downstroke. We did, and we got Bootsy while we was up there. Matter of fact, another bass player, Prakash John, from Toronto, used to play yeah. with us. So we have ties all, all throughout Canada. But man, it must have felt like when you were doing all this stuff, it all seems like pretty linear to me now. But it must have felt all at the time that like no one was really doing what, what Parliament Funkadelic and Funkadelic was doing. You must have had a lot of people telling you you were crazy to be doing some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. That was the concept. Crazy was the prerequisite. <laughs> you know, we, like we, was, <laughs> we, we got to Detroit as a doo-wop group. We were playing with the MC5, Iggy Pop, and all of those... All those people was was the ones that helped help us design what we were doing. We saw how crazy you could really be, you know, just watching Iggy. It was like, damn, you can do all of this as part of the rock and roll. Anybody with any more ice cubes, jelly beans, grenades, eggs they want to throw at the stage? Come on. You paid your money, so you takes your choice, you know. Jimmy burning them guitars, Iggy cutting himself on all of that was part of the era crazy was a prerequisite so we just had to design our crazy and like i say coming out of motown where everything was slick and smooth it was exactly the opposite so for me to do that i had to do a record called free your mind your ass will follow where we just went crazy we were tripping <laughs> got in the studio and did the whole album in like two three days and that was how loose we were in the fun funkadelic side of us. Freedom is free of the need to be free. Free your, your mind and your ass will follow. The kingdom of heaven is within. Parliaments remain straight and slick. That's where the mothership and all of that came from. But the attitude was still with us. We were crazy, and we, we were too black for white folks and too white for black folks. 
What do you mean by that? What do you mean? What do you mean? We were too black for white folks and too white for black folks. Well, on the radio, when you try to you take it to an R&B station, you got rock and roll, loud guitars on there. That was like, oh, wait a minute, oh, come back here. But we were still black, so when we got to the white station, we were a black group. And at that time, you know, you had your black stations and white stations, so they kind of judged it that way. So we had to overcome that. Your black group trying to get on uh, underground radio or, or just plain rock and roll. Period. Underground kind of accepted us. When we did Maggot Brain, we could get on Underground because they didn't like nothing pop. They didn't like nothing really commercial. Mother Earth is pregnant for the third time. For y'all have knocked her up. The people that liked us stayed with us forever. So when we was too black for white folks and too white for black folks, that didn't matter because the people that really liked us, they were slowly growing, but they never left. So we were, I wanted to be like a jazz band, you know, albums as opposed to 45, or like a rock band, albums. Classical music was albums, gospel was albums. Everybody else had to put out 45, had to have a hit single every time they put a record out. I didn't like that concept. I like to put out albums and put out conceptual albums. Well, that was what we did our thing at. And um, we overcome that two black for white folks and two white for black folks as a, over the period of time, which kept us growing all the time. To this day, we can play in any part of the city. One gig we can come in there for whatever, whoever live on this side of town. We can come back next week and play it on the other side of town. The promoters won't even be unhappy. It strikes me that people must have, like people like people in in, in Barry Gordy or like people within those like more traditional circles, must have thought that what you were doing with these bands wasn't a good idea. I mean, you were like a working songwriter. You had the parliaments. They must have thought this wasn't a good idea. And what I'm hearing you say there is it took a long time to prove them wrong. Well, when, once we started doing it, Sly Stone started, came out. It didn't take the Temptations but a minute. We went to Motown envying them. By the time we put Testify out and changed to Funkadelic, we had them doing Psychedelic Shack. Cloud Nine. I'm doing fine up here on Cloud Nine. Papa was a roller. We changed their whole thing. Yeah. Papa was a Rolling Stone kind of sounds like Funkadelic, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like you guys. Well, that's, that, that, that was Norman Whitfield. He, he used to bring his tape recorder into the club, put it on the table and record us while we was performing. Um, Stevie used to come to all the shows. So it was no uh, wonder that him he, him and Bernie had a lot of the same ideas on, on the clavinet and the different keyboard. Sly Stone was like a friend of ours. All of us was influencing each other. Like I said, Motown was the beginning. And once it changed up, Sly became the pop black look. Jimmy was the psychedelic black look. So we was all of that in one. When we got Bootsy, 
We had a third one. We had a, a psychedelic doo-wop group. Boosie was like the love songs <laughs> version of ourselves. Yeah, man. I talked to Bootsy not that long ago, you know? Yeah, I saw, I saw some on the, uh, online just uh, yesterday. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a good guy. We had we had a great chat about you. We talked a lot about James Brown too. Yep, yep. You and James get along? Yeah, yeah. That story about he and I not getting along. No, that was never. Matter of fact, he recorded with Boots and myself on a song called "Go for Your Phone" on the Family series. Go for your phone. What What did he think about what you guys were doing? He thought we was crazy at first, but then. Um, his thing was so unbeatable that he didn't have to worry about nobody. One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up, get up. I mean, we was at Motown. We didn't realize how much of the songs that he was doing. Because, you know, they thought about lyrics being the most important thing. And we used to think he wasn't saying nothing. But his version of the groove and his tones and moans and grunts and uh, that was lyrical. People felt that to this day. Yeah. You put one of those records on, you, I don't care what nationality you are, you ready to dance. That was pure funk. You got to have the feeling. Shoot your bone. Get it together. Right on, right on. Get up. Get on up. I heard James was afraid of you. <laughs> yeah, but Maceo did. You know, Maceo told me how to do that one. He said, he told me, he said, George, he's scared of you. He, he, you know, he thought I was crazy. I didn't make sense. You know, I was going to be tripping it. And, you know, the stories precede you. People yeah. tell about how crazy you are. So he didn't think he knew how to converse with me or, or that I would react a certain way. Maceo, if you need to leave him like that, because if you don't, he's going to treat you like, you know, you're a servant. <laughs> And so I would say something like, hey, James, hey, and, and he'd forget him. So he said, ah, you know, really. And then he'd look and see it's me. I'd look at him like like I'm crazy. Oh, George, George, my man, my man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that was my protection to keeping him because he was, he was really, you know, um, he's, a over, he's a overbearing because he was all of that. Coming up, more of my conversation with the legendary George Clinton. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. One nation under a roof. Getting down just for the bump of it. One nation. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. That is One Nation Under a Groove from Funkadelic. Huge jam from the late 70s. You're in the middle of my conversation with the dude behind Funkadelic, behind Parliament, behind funk music and so much modern music, the legendary George Clinton. 
And here's the thing, George, for being a legend of music, has had to fight hard to get the rights to his own music, including that track. And I wanted to ask him a little bit about that. George, by the way, was in his garden at his Florida home when we spoke, so you might hear the odd chicken while we're talking. Here's the rest of my conversation with the legendary George Clinton. That is Funkadelic with One Nation Under a Groove. A, just an unbelievable song. But I I, I want to talk about this for a second. You had to go to court to win the rights back to that song. You've been challenging record companies and music publishers to get ownership of your own music for years now. Everyone who comes and talks to me, they talk about P-Funk. They talk about Dr. Dre. They talk about like the influence of George Clinton's music on modern hip-hop. You've had to go to court over and over again, and you still don't own... Um, you still don't own a lot of your music. You've talked about this not being a battle for your own music, but also to address decades of exploitation against legacy black artists. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you have to be able to, to leave something to your, to your family, to your heirs. It was all right, you know, for me. They, they got it from me. But when it came time for me to recapture the music for 35 years, when they started getting in the way of that, now they're getting in the way of my kids and my grandkids. So that made me fight a little bit harder than I did for myself. Plus, you know, I, everybody know I was a drug addict during the time. So that ain't no excuse, but they still did it during that time. I started to fight for myself about 10, 12 years ago, really hard. And I got most of them. I got One Nation back. I got Knee Deep back. I got most of them back. But some of them I haven't gotten back. And I want to be able to clear that up for my heirs. And so my family, all of the, and the writers of the, that's in the band, most of them never got paid either. You know, and you end up arguing with each other or fighting with each other because you think that the other one got it. That'd be the story that you took it from him and he took it from you. So and not being able to be mad at anybody in the band because I already understood that I had to wait all this time to all of us got grown enough to kind of like understand what this game is. And now we're pretty much getting together and it's, um, it's getting ready to be very interesting now because a lot of it is being cleared up. A lot of the court cases don't pay no attention to my chickens back here. I got chickens in the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, that's what I'm doing now. I'm fighting for that. Like I understand that it's about your legacy and your family, what you can leave to your family. But to me, it does. It seems to be like a fight because you're not the only legendary black artist of your era to talk to me about not having the rights to your music. You know? Yeah. Oh, no, it's it's like that. Most almost all of the music is like that. It's just another one of those situations where until you learn the education of the, the music business, you'll find out that it's not accidental. It's the way that way it's designed. It's another version of sharecropping, you know, and it's, um, and, and everybody's beginning to understand it now that you got the digital world and everybody can get online. Kids realize they know how to do it better with the computer because they, they hardwire to the computer. It's much easier for them to get, control of it so you see a lot you got a lot of black billionaires from hip-hop okay but we were the guinea pigs for that as it you know as we grew up and and learned i just happened to stay around and my thing was i would go stay around till i understood and got it back that's the thing i made to myself which gave me the energy to still be out here having fun playing 
shows and fighting for the music at the same time because that's what my energy is. I just I told myself I'm not going anywhere till I get this straightened out for my kids. That's beautiful. Let me let me play you one more one more song before we go. Go ahead. Hit me. When the four corners of this cocoon collide, you'll slip through the cracks, hoping that you'll survive. Gather your weight, take a deep look inside. Are you really who they idolize? To pimp for butterflies. I mean, speaking of performers who are making you know groundbreaking music right now that's from Kendrick Lamar's groundbreaking album To Pimp a Butterfly widely considered to be one of the greatest albums of the past 3 or 4 decades you're on that track you're all over the record both you you yourself and also through your influence that's Wesley's theory from that record talk to me a little bit about being on that record oh man it was so cool Ben. he was such a you know I like an old soul he was so young my grandkids told me granddad you'd like him he he talks about the stuff you talk about. So when he came in, and he's from Compton, which is like another one of our homes. You know, we lived there with Dre and Cube and Snoop and all of the guys. That was our other home. So he was a generation away from them. When he came here and we did that record, I could tell by the way he was talking, what he was trying to do, that he was going to be all that. I was on his jock. I was telling everybody. This is going to be the next blah, blah, blah. He was going to be that. Same way I used to do about uh, Eminem. You know, I knew him as a kid in Detroit. So I can tell when they got it like that, when they got it like that, and I know they got the energy to go way past the hit record. Kendrick is that, was that one when he came here. He was all of that. And, and I was so glad to see like now he's still going up. He's not like leveling off. He's still going up, and no matter how oh, new what new rappers come in, they try to like step on the, the old guys to, to get up there. But certain ones you can't do that to. He's one of those ones you can't do that to. Eminem is one of those ones you can't do that to. They gonna stay in the game, and that's what I like about Kendrick. He's gonna be here a while. And and same with Drake. I mean, you're on Drake's new record. Just came out today. Toronto's own. Just came out today. This is the the Star Child, a.k.a. DJ Pooper Scooper. What's on top of the house? Roof. What's in the top of your mouth? Roof. What's babe name? Roof. What do a dog say? Roof. We come to tell the what off? Roof. They raise your tax. We raise the roof. B-A-R-K Radio. How'd that come about? Snoop. Snoop set that up. You know, Snoop and I are really close. And he told me Drake was doing a dog album about dogs. So he knows that I'm into dogs. I'm doing a a dope dog um, Broadway play soon. So he knew that I was into that. So he hooked me up with Drake. And um, like I said, Drake been from Toronto. I, I could I could, I could get that vibe, you know. I could get I could I could hear where he was coming from. Did you get to t- Did you get to hang with Drake, or did you do it more remotely? No, we did it remotely. Oh, like I did with Prince a lot of the times. You you text me or email me something, and you pee on it, send it to me. I pee on it and send it back. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, we're gonna do some other stuff together. Oh man, I can't I can't wait to hear. It. Can you before you go? 
I don't know if I'm ever going to get a chance to talk to you again. I want to ask you this. Can you define funk for me? Oh, funk is anything it needs to be to save your life. Okay, it it can morph like a caterpillar <laughs> to a butterfly. It can morph into whatever it takes. If you're funky, you can change your mind. You can do the best you can and then say, funk it. Funk it is that excuse to, to like I say, walk to the window and say, why should I funk this? I ain't doing that. You don't want to jump. Funk is anything. It's an attitude. It's a music. It's a style. It's a lifestyle. It's whatever it needs to be. It's an attitude. Do the best you can, then funk it. George, uh, nice, to, nice to meet you. Thanks for making the time, man. Okay, glad to talk with you. And congratulations on the... On, you have a new shoe, is that right? Yeah, yeah. John Fluvog. Check them out. They, they, you know, I did a collab with them. I'm an, art, I'm an artist, a, a visual artist, too. So we collabed on a couple of shoes already. This is the third one, and it looks good to me. Well, I can't wait to have a look at it. George, lovely to meet you, man. Take care of yourself. Okay, take care. it for this episode of Q. Uh, I never thought that's how we would get George Clinton on the show, is through his collaboration with a, with Flubog Shoes, but pretty cool. Pretty happy about that. Uh, so cool to talk about George Clinton and talk to George Clinton. Uh, I could talk to him all day, to be honest. Uh, the other episode we put up today is with the singer-songwriter Chapel Rowan, who has an amazing story about being 17 and signed to a major label and moving to L.A. and getting dropped at the beginning of the pandemic and having to go home to her small town in Missouri on a farm and work at a donut shop and how that led to her making her best album yet. Go check that out wherever you got this podcast. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.